Dear Lord, in a world that is so torn with strife and turmoil, and violence and fear, may your message of peace fill our hearts, our homes, our lives, our places of work, and your world. We do ask this in the name of the Prince of Peace, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Be seated, please. We nearly didn't make it to Israel. I'm telling you, we didn't. It, I gave up. Let me tell you what happened. You know uh, the storm that stormed through San Antonio on Sunday night a couple of weeks ago? The wind and the storm and the rain. And uh, I was concerned about what, whether we were going to be able to fly to Houston, leaving at 10 or 10.30 the next morning. Well, we waked up Monday morning, and it was clear like today. Beautiful sunshine. We met out at the airport. Michael, our son, who puts together these trips in a magnificent way, uh, had all, everything arranged. A, a group, part of the group, had left earlier to join us in Chicago. Some came from Dallas. Some came from other parts of the country to meet us in Chicago. But 65 of us were leaving at 1030 uh, to fly to Houston to catch a plane at 11.30 or 12, to fly to Chicago, where we would catch El Al, uh, the airline, Israeli national airline, to fly to Israel, nonstop, 11-hour flight. Well, the storm decided to settle in on Houston. It left San Antonio, but it parked over Houston, and planes could not get into Houston. Five planes had had to be diverted to San Antonio, and they were all sitting out there. Continental Airlines. We were to fly Continental from here to Houston, Continental from Houston to Chicago. We got out there, and they said the weather is horrible, and their planes backed up ahead of yours to get into Houston. Your flight has been canceled. Your flight has been canceled. Well, Mike got on the phone to everybody. He called Israel. He called Houston. He called the Continental Office here in San Antonio. And all of us called on the Lord. <laughs> we prayed in the name of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We prayed in the name of Jesus. We prayed, all of us, Lord, somehow get us to Houston. We didn't have time to catch a bus and get over there and make that connection. If we missed that connection to Houston... Uh, from Houston to Chicago and didn't get there in time, the trip was off for 65 of us. And all the plans of two years were shattered. And those other people, 81 of us all total, those folks would have gone on without us and we could not have gone. The next flight out of Chicago on El Al was not until Wednesday and it was full. If we didn't go then, we didn't go. That's what it amounted to. And I thought, Lord, if you want us there, you've got to perform a miracle. Now, I know that word gets overworked. We use it a lot. When Baylor wins a football game, we call it a miracle. We, we use that word for just about any and everything. But I'm telling you, we were praying for a miracle. I was standing there beside my son Michael, and he was talking to the man in charge of Continental Airlines, and they were all working hard. They were doing everything 
they could to get us to Houston. It wasn't their fault. And uh, Mike suddenly had an idea. And he attributes that to the Lord, and I do too, because no one had thought of it. I was standing there beside him, and he was talking to that gentleman, and he said, um, that plane is going to be able to leave Houston. You can fly out of Houston. They were flying out of Houston. The problem was getting in there. So that plane is going to be able to fly out of Houston. It will have 65 empty seats. Why don't they come over here and pick us up and then go nonstop to Chicago? Well, he said, that's against the regulations. We've never done that. No one does that. It's against the rules. But it's a great idea. I'll call them and we'll find out. <laughs> so he called Houston. And they thought about it a while and said, yeah, we'll do that. But he came back and he said, Continental has agreed to do it, but we've got to check with the pilots union to be sure that that will not require their flying more than the allotted time, the crew that is, because they had to fly from Houston to Chicago and then from Chicago to Mexico City. So they can only fly so many hours without changing the crew. So they had to see whether or not that amount of time that it would take to come over and pick us up would push them over the allotted time for their flying. So for another 20 minutes, we prayed and waited. And he came back in with a big smile on his face. And he said, they'll be here in 45 minutes. Get ready. Get out there. They're going to pick you up. We got the baggage ready to go. No one will be getting off, so just get on. Don't worry about your seats. There'll be 65 empty seats. Find one. Sit down. Be quiet. We're going to fly you to Chicago. <laughs> well, the people got on the plane in Houston to go to Chicago, and they thought they were going to Chicago. <laughs> they did not tell them they were coming to San Antonio. So suddenly they'd been flying for about 30 or 45 minutes. And the pilot said, buckle your seatbelts, we're going, you know, we're, fly we're landing. Well, they no doubt, I thought, thought it was an emergency. It was an emergency. <laughs> I want to tell you, they just didn't know how big an emergency it was. And we got on and sat beside them, and, and a few of them were a little upset. They were terrified of what was happening. You can understand why they were a little frustrated uh, at this uh, taking place. Uh, and they, they said, you know, we could tell when we were landing here, that we were not landing in Chicago. <laughs> but uh, we got on there, and we flew to Chicago without a hitch, got on the plane together, and went to Israel, and had a remarkable time. Now, that was against all regulations, against all rules. Experienced travelers on that trip with us, uh, I'm, I among them, I've traveled a lot, and there were some there who traveled a lot more than I have on airlines and travel a lot more than I do. And they said, we have never heard of any such thing happening, ever, for a scheduled airline to just divert and go over and pick up somebody and take them like a custom charter deal to Chicago. That does not happen. Well, it did happen. They changed their plans to pick up some stranded passengers and travelers. God has been repeatedly changing his plans to pick up stranded travelers. 
The scripture we read in the early part of this service from the 55th chapter of the book of Isaiah, God is telling us that he has regulations beyond those that we understand. He has plans beyond the plans we comprehend. He has thoughts bigger than our thoughts. He's thought of things we haven't thought of. He has plans we've not yet imagined. And he tells us this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You read the Bible, Hebrew Bible in the New Testament. You read the Word of God, and you will read there a record of never-ending desire on the part of God to pick up folks, to restore them, to rescue them, to save them, and help them make connections to get to the promised land. God has been repeatedly changing his plans to rescue folks. Let me mention a few of them. Children of Israel were held in Egyptian bondage for hundreds of years, and God created the Moses Airlines Incorporated to go over and say to Pharaoh, we're going to change your plans, Pharaoh. These people are leaving for the promised land. He rescued his people. He picked up his folks. He restored them to a relationship with himself. Years later, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians captured the people of God and took them away into exile in Babylon. And God put together an airline, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel airline, and said, get my people to the promised land. Restore them. Bring them back. They're stranded. They need to be picked up. They're helpless. And they need help. They're lost. And they need someone to find them. In that great 23rd Psalm, one of the phrases David uses is he restored it. My soul. God's not only restoring his people... Collectively, he's restoring us individually. God has come to restore us, to pick us up when we're stranded, when we're helpless, when we can't make connections to get to the promised land. God even cared enough about the Ninevites. They were horrible people capital of Assyria, God told Jonah, one of the great books in the Hebrew Bible, God told Jonah, one of the prophets in the Bible, God told Jonah, his preacher, he said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach and tell those people they need to repent. And Jonah said, I don't like those people. And I know if I go over there and preach to them, 
It's just like you to pull a surprise and save them. And so I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. I know you are a gracious God. And I know you're long-suffering. And I know you're forgiving. And if I go over there and preach to them, and I don't want them to be saved, I don't want them to be rescued, and I'm not going to go. And he went in another, in another direction. But God has a magnificent way of rerouting his preachers when they start in the wrong direction. He went down there and he got on, Jonah went down there and got on a boat at Joppa, where we were the last night that we were in Israel. He got on a boat and he headed for the furthest most part of the, of the Mediterranean Sea. And God sent a storm after him. And God sends a storm after anybody who gets started in the wrong direction. Not to punish them, but to get them back on the track to restore them. Jonah was a hard-headed Baptist preacher. <laughs> he was in the, well, he got out there. You know the story of Jonah. They got into this storm and they found out that Jonah was the cause of the problem and threw him overboard. And he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights before he even prayed. I mean, I'd have been praying before I hit the water. But just show you how hard-headed Jonah was, he didn't pray until he'd been in the belly of the fish three days. It says, then Jonah called upon the name of the Lord. Jonah prayed, and God heard him, and God miraculously got him headed in the right direction. <laughs> I mean, that rebellious, cantankerous Baptist preacher made that whale sick to his stomach, and he threw him up on the beach. And Jonah went to Nineveh with seaweed and, and whale all over him, and he went there just as mad as he could be, and he preached, and the whole city repented. Everybody changed their ways, and it made Jonah just as mad as he could, could be. He said, God, I knew you'd do it. Why did you do that? Why did you do it? I don't like those people, and I don't want anything to do with them. And God says, Jonah, I have something to do with those people. And the last verse of this little book of Jonah God says this, Nineveh, was more than, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. In other words, Nineveh, that's how big Nineveh was. It had more than 120,000 children who couldn't tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God's concerned about every city. And God is wanting to send his Jonas, even sometimes rebellious though they may be, to send them to tell the world that the Lord has a salvation airline ready to take you to the promised land. He'll pick you up wherever you are. Jesus picked up this same theme when he, when he, when he preached his sermon at Nazareth that I read about a moment ago. He talked about two folks that were not part of the society of the Jews at that particular time. A Syrophoenician woman, a widow, a, a Naaman, a, a Syrian, a leper, who came to Elisha. Elijah ministered to the widow at Zarephath, and the Syrophoenician woman performed a miracle in her home, raised her son from the dead. Naaman was a Syrian, a general. He was a leper. And he got word that Elisha, the prophet of God, had a message for him. And Elisha sent a message to Naaman saying, Go down to the Jordan River and dip yourself seven times and you'll be healed. 
And Naaman said, well, why can't I go home? We got better rivers in, in, in Syria than you've got here. And his aides prevailed and said, go ahead and do it. What do you got to lose? And he dipped seven times in the Jordan and he was healed of his leprosy. And he started worshiping Jehovah. He made a great offering, built an altar, went back home, built an altar to the worship of the God of Jacob, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus is saying, see, God's always been concerned about reaching out to the whole world, reaching out everywhere. You hear the message of this in the second chapter of the book of Mark. Uh, let me t in the third chapter, let me tell you quickly these stories. A lot of you are familiar with them. One happened in Simon Peter's house, we think. It was a house that was just packed with people, and Jesus was speaking there. And there was a paralyzed man that was paralyzed, and, and he couldn't get in. And they, his four friends were trying to get him into the presence of Jesus to get him healed, and to hope that somehow this man's life, paralyzed by guilt, could be, could be helped. And they couldn't get in because there were so many people there. And so they tore the roof off of the house. Can you imagine Jesus standing there preaching in the plaster and everything falling down? And suddenly this body comes down from above. These four friends lording this man in to the feet of Jesus. Boy, you're talking about interrupting a worship service. The plaster falling and here a body comes down at the feet of Jesus. Parenthetically, there's just one thought there I want to pick up on and just stick it in your mind and let it remain there. God's more concerned about people than he is property. God is more concerned about people than property. Tore the roof off the house to get this man in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus forgave him. And uh, it, it, obviously he had a problem. His paralysis was due to some sin in his life. Now, all sickness is not the result of some sin. Jesus specifically declared that not to be the truth. The book of Job speaks categorically against that. God does not do that. But if a person has something in their lives that keeps them from being right with God, it can paralyze every relationship. It can keep them from being free. It can keep them from knowing the liberty and the wonderful freedom that is theirs through the grace of God and the forgiveness. Dr. Carl Menninger said that about 75% of the people in the hospitals today could be released if they could accept forgiveness. Accept forgiveness. This man was forgiven. He got up. He was made whole. He was healed. You know what Jesus is telling us there? He's telling us there that God has love personal enough for anybody. God has love personal enough for anyone. Immediately after that, here's Matthew, a Jew who had sold out to the Romans, was working for them. He was a turncoat, a quisling, a traitor, and he was working for the Romans as a tax collector. He was hated by the Jewish people because he was a traitor to them. Jesus walks along and says, Matthew, come follow me. I want you to be one of my disciples. And he got up and started following Jesus and had a big party, had a party, invited all of his friends to come so that he could tell them what Jesus had done in his life. He called him and his life was changed. You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying there that God has a fellowship big enough for everybody. It doesn't make any difference how much you how far away from God you may feel yourself to be. Whether you feel like you've been a traitor to God or God's people or yourself, He still calls you. He wants you. He invites you. He has a fellowship big enough for anybody. 
I think the best word that can be applied to the church and the word that ought to be applied to the church everywhere is the word inclusiveness, not exclusive. Inclusive, because God is a fellowship big enough for everybody. Everybody. He has a love personal enough for anybody. And then, next event happened in the third chapter, happened just a day or so after that, Jesus was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and there was a man there who had a, a withered hand. He couldn't stretch out his hand. And they looked at Jesus to see whether or not he was going to heal that man on the Sabbath. Now, it would be okay to heal him if he waited until the Sabbath was over. Jewish Sabbath, as you know, runs from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. But here he was. They were in the synagogue on Saturday, and this man had a withered hand. They looked at Jesus, wondering whether or not he was going to heal this fellow on the Sabbath. And Jesus did. He said, stretch out your hand. Well, that's the very thing he couldn't do. But Jesus said, do it. The power of a positive word. Stretch it out. And he did, and he was healed. And they got upset because Jesus did it on the Sabbath. They said, why didn't you wait a couple of hours? It been okay for you. It's okay to heal the man, but it's wrong to do that on the Sabbath. That's why when Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Here, Jesus is saying that his message can't wait. It can't be put off. It can't be postponed. It's not for something for the next generation to do. It's something for this generation to do. For the next generation is going to be contingent upon what we do now, today. Vision 2000. Many of us will not be here through many of the years of Vision 2000. I doubt if I'll see another millennium besides that. I'm, I'm going to be in the next one. I'm going to be here to Vision 2000 and beyond, but I doubt if I'll be here for another millennium. But I'm going to be somewhere the next millennium. But I tell you, if God does not come back in person, this church needs to be here 20, 40, 50, 100, 1,000 years from now, and it will be if we do what God wants us to do now. Today, for he has a love and he has a message that cannot wait, cannot be postponed to a more significant or propitious moment. Now's the time, today's the day for us to say, I'm going to be committed. I'm going to do what God wants me to do, and I'm going to do it now. Commitment. That's the word we need, isn't it? Commitment. Commitment. Some of you have already made a commitment to be a part of Vision 2000 and serve on the committee. And if you haven't been asked, you're going to be asked to be a part of it. And I urge you to say yes. I plead with you to say yes, not for my sake. But I'm asking you to say yes to making a difference in the next century for the sake of my grandchildren and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Tomorrow is contingent upon what we do today. Andre Malraux said, oft quoted, the 21st century will be spiritual or it will not be. That phrase just grabs me by the spiritual throat. The 21st century will be spiritual or it will not be. And whether it's spiritual or not is dependent upon us. Each one of us. This is not a time for lazy discipleship. 
It's time to say we're going to do it now. We're going to make our commitment now. We're going to take our stand for the Lord now. We're going to do it now. We're going to do it today. Best example of commitment that I think I've ever heard or seen happened about 10 years or more ago in this church. You know, we have a lot of students in our church. A lot of the students that come to our church, Bible study and all the things that our student ministry does, um, they come from homes where no one goes to any church anywhere. And every year we have a big camp, as you know. At that camp, a lot of decisions are made. People accepting Christ, kids getting their life right with the Lord and with one another, uh, getting, getting their life straightened out in regard to their morals and their, the way they're living. A lot of wonderful things happen in those student camps, like they happen every week in the life of this church with them, but in a special way in the summer. Well, this one kid, high school boy, he had never been to church in his life until he came to Trinity at the invitation of some friends. He'd never been to church camp, ever. But he signed up to go because he thought it'd be a lot of fun, as it always is, a lot of fun. He'd never been in what we call big church. He'd never been in here. He'd just go to Sunday school and stay with those kids and then go home. But he went to youth camp. And the youth camp, he accepted Christ as his Savior. Out of the blue. No background for it at all. No church background. No family influence. Just the influence of friends he'd met here in this church and other young people that he'd been with here at Trinity. And uh, he made a profession of faith. Roger Glidewell was our minister to students at that time. And Roger was talking to this boy about what it meant to be a member of the church, what it means to be a Christian. You ask the Lord to come into your life, and then you're baptized. Well, he said, what's baptism? Well, Roger explained baptism and told about the baptistry up there and how we baptize, and people come and stand around the baptistry, family and friends. stand. He'd never seen a baptismal service, never, didn't know what it was. So Roger was explaining it to him, explaining about coming to Sunday school and Bible study, Gave him a Bible and all those things. And uh, this young man said, you mean that Jesus wants me to be baptized? Roger said, well, in the New Testament, all those who became Christians were baptized as an outward expression of an inner experience. He said, so, so Jesus... Wants me to do that. Roger said, yes, I believe he does. You want me to do that? Roger said, yes, I really do. For your sake, I want you to do it. He said, well, Roger, I've got to tell you, I've never been naked before that many people in my life. But if that's what Jesus wants me to do, I'll do it. <laughs> well, when Roger told us this in the staff meeting, we, we did what you did. I just came apart. I laughed until I cried. And Roger was talking to him alone. Roger said, it took all the self-control I could muster not to laugh in the kid's face. He was serious. 
Never been naked before that many people in my life, but if that's it, if that's what Jesus wants me to do, I'll do it. Now, brother, that is commitment. <laughs> that is commitment. He was willing to do that. Roger kept a straight face and was able to explain to him, no, that's not the way it's done. We have robes and it's all very discreet and very proper. He felt greatly relieved. <laughs> but the point is, and we talked about it in staff meeting, and I've thought about it a lot of times. He was willing to do that. Now let me ask you, and let me ask myself a question. You and I say that we believe in the Lord and we trust Him as our Savior. And He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love one another. You mean that's what Jesus expects me to do? That's what Jesus expects us to do, if you love him. If you love him, Peter, feed my sheep. If you love me, take care of my little lamb. If you love me, feed, clothe, help pick up, rescue, restore, change your plans, change your attitudes, change your ways, if you love me. And so I think all of us should ask ourselves the question, how serious is our commitment? If, if, we love him. What are we going to be? What are we going to do? What are we going to give? If, if you love him. If you love him and have never confessed him openly, that's what he asks you to do. If you confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. If, you love me. I gave myself for the church. If you love me, give yourself to the church. If you love me, well, how do we love you? I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a prisoner, and you visited me. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was sick, and you helped me, you came to me. And inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me if you love me. If you love him, trust him this morning. Accept him publicly this morning. If you love him, join his church today. If you love him, make a commitment to the next century. Now, today, if, if, if. It's God's invitation, not mine. It's God's appeal, not Buckner's.
Jesus said, if you love me, follow me.